This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Design and fabrication is a topic that almost all architects discuss at one point or another. How does it inform the creative process? Who gets involved? Why does it make sense? We're going to be talking about all this and more, along with special guest Matthew Huft on episode 85, Design and Fabrication. Special thanks to Otis Elevator for their generous support of today's episode. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And I'm excited more than usual for today's episode because we are talking about a topic that I've always been fascinated by, but I've never truly experienced, at least not in the way that today's guest has embraced it. The founder of Huff Architecture and Fabrication, Matthew Huff is an architect by trade and an entrepreneur by nature. He identified strongly with his creative talents at an early age and even declared on a cassette tape for a second grade project that his chosen career would be an architect. Matthew holds two degrees in architecture from the University of Kansas and Columbia University. After graduating from Kansas in 2000, he won the prestigious SOM Traveling Fellowship Award. Matthew's early mentors were the respected architect Stanley Tigerman, based in Chicago, and Bernard Schumi, duly based in Paris and New York. His first commission, a residential home for his parents, nicknamed the Line House, came at the very young age and inexperienced point of 22 years old. Through this foundational project, Matthew learned the value of collaboration and communication. Other commissions came as a direct result and thus the beginning of Huft. Today, Huft is compiled of more than 50 creative and talented individuals based in Kansas City, Missouri and Bentonville, Arkansas. The firm has completed over 500 projects spanning from corporate headquarters, mixed-use developments, and various hospitality projects to single-family residences. The firm has won more than 50 AIA awards and has been published in over 100 national and international periodicals. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Honored to be here. How are things? Are you in Bentonville today or are you in Kansas City? I am in Kansas City. I uh, go back and forth quite a bit every other week, kind of balance between one place and the next, but Kansas City currently. Yeah. When did you open that office in Bentonville? We opened that office seven years ago, wow. so, but have been working there probably eight or nine. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Hmm. So I appreciate you making time to join us today. I've been an admirer of your work for long time. And I thought that you might find this interesting. The way I found Huffed years ago was actually through the Instagram account of Scott Beatty. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly. Yeah. Yeah. He's known to me as SGB73. Yeah. And I believe the first image I saw was a TV cabinet, a lift cabinet for your artery residence. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. He's still with us. He's our shop foreman. He's a wonderful craftsman and friend. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny how things like social media can broaden your horizons. And I found it because I have an interest in the craftsmanship nature. And, you know, and of course, programs like Instagram will look at the things that you're looking at and start to feed you some of those things when you're just searching through it. And my feed is full of craftsmen that work in the construction and the architectural and design profession. So I thought it was funny that in your intro, it actually says you declared this on cassette tape. It kind of dates you a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, right? Yeah. But So you declared that in second grade. Andrew and I just last night were talking about how old people were when they figured out that they wanted to be an architect. So I was five years old and you were in second grade, which probably makes you around six or seven, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, right. so starting in second grade, you wanted to be an architect. Did you ever waver on that thought, you know, between? No, I've always, I can honestly say I never have, I don't have one memory of not wanting to be an architect. I've always just kind of known it. And I thought that for a long time, and I said that to people for a long time, but it wasn't until I just, it was a time capsule I made for my second grade class that I put that cassette tape in, the old ancient device of a cassette. And I discovered it, you know, in my 20s and, and listened to it. And it was kind of my proof that I, I had always wanted to be an architect. Do you still have that cassette tape? Yeah, I do. 
I have it digitally. I could even find it and send it. I was going to say, if you found that today, you might have a hard time finding something to play it on. Right? I mean, like, I got <laughs> yeah. this cassette. I don't even know what it has right. on it. Yeah, I don't have a cassette player. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I don't remember exactly how I got it onto a digital device, but yeah. Well, that's pretty amazing. One of the questions I had for you that I wanted to start off with was kind of like your trajectory. It's interesting. When we talk to people, or honestly, when two architects get together and you're talking about your formative years and how you got from A to B to C to D, ultimately leading up to where you're at in this moment, that has a bit of a journey to it. Your journey, quite honestly, seems really short to get to what your first path real was because after you graduated from Columbia, you went to work for Bernard Schumi's office for about a year and a half. And I was curious as to how that experience went for you. It was awesome. So he was the dean of Columbia when I was in school there, and he happened to step down to focus on his work as I was graduating and asked me to come work for him. And it was a great experience. I worked on a lot of international work, and I kind of was thrown into the world of the kind of European competition, which is very different than the, you know, the system that we're used to in the States. Very fast, quick-paced, and high design. So it, it was a great experience. I got a lot of experience all the way from kind of SD through you know the whole construction administration thing. So it was wonderful. Yeah. But you left there after like a year and a half to start mm -hmm. your own office. Mm -hmm. What are you, 25 around that time? At that point, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah. And I got my first real commission for a non-parent <laughs> was a house called The Residence. And the client had seen the project I'd done, you mentioned, and my bio called The Line House for my parents. And I did that all just moonlight hours. You know, They didn't pay me for it. What I got in return was a, a house, a portfolio piece, and took about four years. It was all nights and weekends and through grad school. Moonlighting, as I know you've done a podcast on, that during the Shumi years, I would go home at night and work on it. And Anyway, the house was done and it was to great fanfare. It was in a town called Springfield, Missouri, which is at that point in time, gosh, this, I'm starting to sound really old, but this was 20 years ago, I guess. There really wasn't a lot of modern architecture. Dwell Magazine was, I don't think it had started. If it had started, it was just kind of getting going. People were kind of mind blown by what modern house could do and be. And that's what snowballed things. And, and my first real client hired me for this house and it was enough money. I knew it was enough money for me to survive for one year, that fee. And so that's what I allowed me to take the plunge. I uh, started up shop. That is so bold because I took over a firm when I was 30, maybe 31 or 32. And I felt like I was <laughs> jumped into the deepest of deep end with what I knew and what I was doing. Maybe that had to do with the fact that it was already a running practice, but it's still like doing it at that age, or I mean, younger, seems insane to me now as an older person almost. It, it, that's crazy. I was crazy for doing it then, but I can't imagine doing it at an even earlier age. You know, people would say that to me, and I just kind of didn't understand what they meant. I never once hesitated. Yeah. I will tell you now, though. <laughs> yeah. Now that I'm say. entering my mid 40s, <laughs> I look back on it and I'm thinking, I think I was missing that part of my brain that has. The risk aversion. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I completely understand. Cause yeah, at the time it seemed like the most natural choice to make, but now looking back, yeah, it's like, Whoa, I, I don't know if I would do that now, but at the time <laughs> it's like, you didn't know any better. It's just, yep. that's it. Yeah. I think it's kind of been a curse and a blessing because I've been very naive throughout my career and I've taken on risk a lot uh, in a lot of different ways. And, and I think, and in a lot of ways, it's again, it's been a blessing. It's allowed me to kind of get ahead and do things that I've been doing. Would the current version of you tell the 25-year-old version of you anything of particular note? I don't know if I'd tell the 25-year-old me something, but I might tell the 30-year-old something me. <laughs> and the reason is, is, you know, after that first house, things really exploded for us. We started the company in New York and we were doing a lot of work in New York and we're pretty happy. But, you know, the, the common story of a lot of people that are transplants to New York City after a while, you get tired of spending the money and kind of dealing with some of the complexities of living in the city. And I was from the Midwest and actually Stanley Tigerman, one of my mentors, when I left his office, he asked me what I wanted to do. I said, well, I want to open my own shop someday. And he goes, where are you from again? And I said, no, I'm from the Midwest. And he said, well, you need to move back there. 
That's where you need to go. That's where your network is. That's always stuck with me because that's what I did. I moved back to the Midwest and he was right. That's where my network was. And that's where a lot of our work was coming from. So we moved back to the Midwest. We got a lot of work and grew quickly. I didn't take out a loan. That was also part of it too. Like it was very organic. I just got work and I needed to hire someone to hire someone. And that's what I did. And we went from just me to, you know, two or three people in my basement. Um, And then I got a letter from the city saying, you can't operate a business out of your basement. (laughs) And so then I rented a place in Midtown, Kansas City, and it was organic growth. And all of a sudden we were, I think we were like 85 people was bananas. It was way too much growth, too fast, too soon. That is the one thing I would go back and tap myself on my shoulder. There was definitely a period there where it got a little out of control and it was difficult and hard to kind of deal with. And it was a good lesson learned for me. But again, I think it's hard to say, you know, hindsight always is 2020. And it's hard to say if, if I would have been able to get to where we are today without kind of going through some of that. I always find it kind of, uh, you made the comment about being risk averse or actually the lack of being risk averse. And I was actually having a conversation with two of my buddies at lunch today and I told him I was talking to you and I said, oh, this is how we got to start. And we were talking about those early years when people go out on their own and there was a, how do you get your first project? What jump starts these things? And I was like, don't lose sight of the fact that somebody still had to pull the trigger. There's a lot of people that probably could go out on their own, but they never do because it's scary and it's hard. And I want to make sure that I, I want my family to live indoors during this time period. <laughs> You know, and have working heat and all that kind of stuff. And so they don't ever take that plunge. So I don't think it's a small thing for somebody. I thought it was interesting when you said you were 30, because part of me initially went, it's almost easier to take that plunge because 25 year olds feel bulletproof. They feel like, yeah, I'll recover. I can either do it. If I can't, what's the big deal? I'll recover. But it's not until the gravity of like who you're responsible for, or if you have family members, or if you have other obligations that you start to really put it all together when you get older. And I think it's harder sometimes to pull that trigger when you get a little bit older. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, everything you just said, I, I didn't have a lot of responsibility and I was failure wasn't going to be that big a deal at 25. When you made the decision to broaden your practice beyond doing residential work, that is where you got your start. Mm-hmm. Did that process grow organically or was it a decision made by you, and at least, I don't know if it was a team of people that were working on it, but how did you decide to branch out from doing residential to do other work? Um, uh, or did you? Did it just happen? <laughs> that would be my other thing. Is Did you make a conscious choice? No, not really. It just happened. Most of our early years, our formative years, were 100% client-driven. We never advertised. We never marketed. I never responded to a single RFP for the first five years of our business. It was 100% client referral repeat business. And so to answer your question, we got a commercial project from a residential client. We did their house and then they said, well, we like you and we like what you do. Can you do commercial? And of course, I also never said no. <laughs> to this day, again, lessons learned somewhat there. I mean, I think we were opportunistic and very ambitious. And if someone said that you want to do something, the answer was always yes. And so we started doing smaller retail projects and uh, commercial work. And you know, we did the world's first lead platinum shopping center for a residential client, which is pretty cool. We've done a, a massive mixed-use commercial project for a client that we started off making a coffee table for. We did a coffee table for him, and then he, he liked us, and he hired us to do his apartment, and then he hired us to do this massive mixed-use project. And now we're actually, we've been working with him for 15 years. We're getting ready to start like our third or fourth large commercial work. Well, it's interesting. So let's take that as an, an opportunity to segue into the base topic that I wanted to speak with you about today, which has to do with fabrication as part of the creative process in architecture. So I have a, a handful of questions. Let's start with an easy one. How important do you feel it is that artisans and fabricators and designers and architects are all involved in a project? When you say involved, you mean, you know, kind of have a say in regards to how things get executed? Well, I know that your office, maybe we should start this way. Your office is not just made up of architects and interior designers. You do have a wood shop. You have a fabrication shop as part of your facility. And I believe, and I think that it's underneath the grocer's warehouse where your office is at. It talks a little bit about the separation between the office part and the fabrication part. And there's 
actually like a visual connection between the two. Yeah. And I told you earlier on, like the way I found you was through the fabrication work that was being produced. Yeah. It happened to be for a house, but I've seen images of beer taps that you're making and, and other tables in a lot of retail environments. There's a lot of millwork that's being produced. So I wanted to ask, like, how does involving the people that make these products, there's the design process, but there's getting people who are the fabricators themselves, the artisans themselves involved in that process to kind of collaborate or help advance what you're doing to get it to where you want it to be. I think it's really important. You know, part of our, our mission is about creating meaningful work. And meaningful is something that's subjective, of course. But to me, the more people that have their hand in something and collaborate on something like a piece of furniture, the more meaningful it can be. It's detail, it's thoughtfulness, the better it gets. It's not an easy task to ask people to collaborate. It's not natural. I don't think it's natural for designers to collaborate with artisans. I think it's it's been a difficult thing for me to learn how to orchestrate, but I think it's very important. And I think, and I know that when it happens and it happens successfully, it's a really beautiful thing. And the project benefits from it greatly. When did you decide to incorporate a fabrication studio into your office as part of your workflow? So the story behind it is when I got that first commission for my parents at 22, I'll never forget my mom asking me. I kind of grew up in a semi-traditional home and my parents had gotten interested in architecture through my education and, and specifically modern architecture. And when she asked me if I could design a home for them, of course I said, yes, but I'll never forget. I remember where I said it. I remember what she looked at. I remember everything about it, you know, and in the back of my head, it was like, what are you? <laughs> you have no idea how to do this. And so the strategy quickly became, I needed to collaborate with people who knew what they were doing. I just did. Right. So we were lucky enough to start off with a good contractor who was very, very humble and easy to work with. And at that point in time, again, dating myself, I would fax him sketches and he would sketch on top of them and fax them back. And that's how we developed the drawing set. I worked with him on, on figuring out the details. Like he kind of showed me how to detail something, not an architect, but a contractor. And then that process carried on. It was successful and it carried on and we got into the house and it was like, well, I need to figure out custom metal detail. And so I found a metal guy. I did the same thing. I need to figure out how to build these cabinets. Found a cabinet guy. So that was how it just became the way I worked. And it was really out of necessity more than anything, because I just didn't know how to do things. And so that carried on and, and I kept that method of working. And I worked with those craftsmen specifically on several projects. As we started to grow, I created new relationships. And one day worked with a metal company and that guy that owned the metal company asked me to have a beer with him. And, and during that beer, he goes, you're basically employing me right now. How about you really just employ me? <laughs> and I had an office that had a garage that was empty. It just so happened. Didn't rent the office because it had a garage, but I did. And, and so I started off with one guy and one welder and quickly knew I needed to expand because metal was a small part of what we did, but wood was a much more significant piece, especially casework. So expanded into woodworking. And now we're, I think our shop is about 30,000 feet. We've got four different main studios. We have a digital studio with digital fabrication equipment, CNC machine and such. And we've got a metal studio and we've got a wood studio and we've got a full professional paint facility. And so it's expanded a lot and has been really a big part of our identity and how we work now. Do those studios take outside work on? Are they standalone? They do. Yeah, they do. And we love to do that. It's not the bulk of our work, but we have a handful of designers that we work with kind of regionally and nationally and love to do that work. And those designers tend to love to work with our craftsmen because they kind of know how to work together. I would imagine. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Chris Smith. Vice President of Global Marketing and Product Strategy with the Otis Elevator Company. Chris is tasked with building marketing strategies multiple steps ahead. He leads all marketing activities for Otis's three major lines of business, which includes new construction, service, and modernization. He and his team are also transforming how Otis improves the customer journey as B2B customer behaviors continue to evolve. Hi, Chris. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. 
pleasure is all ours because we're talking about elevators today, which is a really important role in our buildings. Founded in 1853, Otis is one of the longest standing elevator companies. Otis products are in some of the most recognizable, iconic buildings in the world. So we have a couple of questions we'd like to run through with you, if that's okay. Sounds good. What is Otis's role when it comes to urban mobility in the future? So we very active in that area of smart buildings. We feel we have a very prominent role in the smart buildings, smart cities. And to us, where the future is going is this seamless journey. How do we connect all the different things happening in a city to make the elevator more efficient, to shorten the passenger's journey, and to get them to where they want to go? Because typically the elevator is just that connecting point. So we have an open API architecture. We have a developer portal for APIs where people can connect to our systems. Think of the future of where now an elevator takes in weather data into how it dispatches people and moves people in a building. Why is that important? I worked in a large city at one time in my career, and I can tell you the cafeteria was packed when it was raining. <laughs> when it was a beautiful day, no one went to the corporate cafeteria. Yeah, sure. So think of how that we can use that external data to better position elevators during rainy days. The Friday before a, a major holiday, people take the time off. If we dispatch elevators the same on a Friday before a major holiday, we aren't using the data we have, which says there's going to be fewer people in the building. And oh, by the way, why don't we shut down a few of the elevators to use less energy so the building is operating more efficiently? What about calendar data? Think of a building that has an amphitheater. They know there's 100 people scheduled for a meeting between two and three. Again, how can we efficiently position elevators in the building in order to get people to that meeting? And then, of course, more importantly, after the meeting, position elevators at that floor to get people back to their home floor more quickly. We feel the elevator connection, how we connect people to where they want to go, using that external data into our traffic algorithms is something that's really exciting and we're beginning to work on. You know, it sounds like the ultimate goal here is to have happy travelers within the building. Everything is to make their experience smoother, faster, better, safer. I'm sensing a pattern here. Yes, exactly. We don't want to be that bad experience. And if they do have that bad experience, at least give them comfort with someone during that short period of time. Yeah. It does sound like the goal is to keep those bad experiences to a minimum. How is Otis partnering with architects to build safer and smarter buildings? The demand we're seeing is that people want to know that that elevator ride, because it's a contained environment, is a safe one. So we're finding that people are asking for these touchless solutions and including air purification. So we can retrofit the current fan on an elevator to make sure the air is more purified. We can put in UV lights in order to kill any viruses on surfaces. I was a big Star Trek fan, and I always loved it when Captain Kirk got in the, I guess they called it an elevator, and said, bridge or sick bay, and it took him there. And so adding voice, so get touched out of any equation. Those are the things that we are working on. And then the Gen 360 elevator, specifically for architects, is how do you design a building that gives you more design freedom because of this electronic architecture, which no longer requires so much mechanical equipment and can reduce overheads, reduce the pits, and provide more passenger comfort inside the same size hoistway. Those are all things that we are focused on in order to improve the experience in buildings. I can tell you with 100% certainty when we finish our call today, I'll go back into my studio and I'm going to tell a handful of people, hey, Gen 360 elevators, no cab on top of the building, flat roofs, and we're all going to sing and dance. There's going to be a little party. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are going to have a party. I'm going to go on a limb here and say that the Gen 360 is not a 360 degree spinning elevator. No. <laughs> the Willy Wonka. I know that would be cool, but I was trying to figure out the difference between the 3 yeah. and the 360. The 360 is because it's really the first elevator that takes all those constituents in an elevator design and build. So the architect, the GC, the building owner, the passenger, our mechanics, when we designed that product, we took a truly a 360-degree view of who uses the elevator and designed that into the product. So that's where that name comes from. I love it. Gotcha. For more information on Gen 3 and Gen 360 elevators, please visit www.otis.com. Chris, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with Andrew and I today. We really appreciate the time you spent to educate us on what Otis is doing and the difference it's making in our world. I appreciate your time, Bob and Andrew. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us today. 
So when you decided to incorporate this and it, there was an evolution to it, kind of started out of, well, here's an opportunity presenting itself and an opportunity to grow it. And do you start, and I'm not even sure the best way to ask this question, does it start to be like, how can we incorporate this level of craft into our projects, knowing that we have these people and these tools and these skill sets readily available to us? So when you're designing something, you go, well, I want to do this and I have a guy who can do it. So you either purposefully or serendipitously start incorporating those people into the designs you're doing because you have access to them. Does that happen? Yeah, it does. It's interesting. I'm not sure if it's purposeful or serendipitous uh, or something else. I think it's probably a mixture of all those things. What I have learned is, and I touched on this a second ago, is I don't think architects and designers not all architects and designers are naturally inclined or sometimes even excited about collaborating. I find that a lot of, a lot of us are naturally, at times being one of them, want to put on my headphones and just kind of work, right? And the effort to get up and tap someone on the shoulder and ask about detailing is not natural. So we've set up a system. We've got a checklist, like I'm sure most offices do, of when you go through a project, are you doing these things? In our checklist, we've got a fabrication operate, we call it fab ops. And we have fab ops meetings at the end of SD and the end of DD and end of CD, where it's really, you kind of have to do it to get to the next step. And in that meeting, you come together with the shop and with the craftsman in the office and kind of talk about the project and what's in that project that could benefit from us fabricating it. And that has helped tremendously. That kind of makes sure that we start to get engaged. And it just depends on the project too. Our residential work, is very different than our commercial work just because it's someone's house. And so that is a different process and kind of how much we do there, which we typically do quite a bit in our residential work. Our commercial work has to have a bit more financial purpose behind it. We do a lot of work, retail work, where we work well with clients that kind of do rapid prototype sort of things because we can fabricate all the fixtures and box them up and ship them out. And they love that. So that's one reason to do it on the commercial side, but it's just very different. It's very fast and more bottom line driven. So it just varies a lot. Yeah. I was going to ask in every project you do, it sounds like you kind of answered it, but do you start off with an intent of trying to incorporate your own fabrication or does it just, you get projects and if it, if it happens to come up, then it does. My question is more like, are you seeking out those opportunities to say, all right, this is a project where we can do both those are the kind of projects that we want. And that's the kind of projects we pursue. Or is it just, we want to do this project and it so happens that now we can do some fabrication just from like a business standpoint. It's both. It's interesting. One thing that has, again, no business plan ever with any of this, just totally, you know, a grassroots figuring it out as I go. Still am figuring it out by the way. But what's interesting and, and one of the surprise facets of this has become now people seek us out and expect us to fabricate everything, mm. especially at home. Yeah. The commercial work, it's different. You know, it just kind of depends. But on the residential side, it's just kind of become part of our identity and, and kind of assumed, although we never really assume it because, you know, it's, it's kind of presumptuous to assume that someone would want us to do that level of service. So it, we always kind of view it as a great opportunity and, and gift when the client gets excited about it. But I'd say nine out of 10 of our clients come in the door fully expecting and wanting us to fabricate stuff. For example, on that the parlor project you guys did some fabrication on that. what all did you fabricate for that i couldn't find it i was looking through it but you know it said you did fabrication that's a hospitality project so i'm curious as to like what level did you guys provide we did most of the fixtures like bar stools and bar tables screen walls i think we did some casework there's some kind of metal screens that are on each it's a food hall, so each food stall has some kind of custom fabricated steel tube framework around it. We did that. So it just, it kind of varies. Yeah. We also learned that you know, we expanded pretty quickly and we kind of, that thing I was telling you where I have a hard time saying no, well, that continued and we ended up kind of our services grew to the point where we learned we had, we were doing too many things. Mm -hmm. And so we pulled back. We don't do any installation or we do very little. And that really works well for us because then it's, People are always kind of within our walls and it's the craftsmen we work with, they're kind of creatures of habit and they like to kind of be in their environment <laughs> yeah, yeah. and when pull them out and put them on a job site that gets really difficult. So 
I'm telling you all that say that on the commercial side, especially we have to be strategic about the stuff that we can do. It has to be stuff that can be fabricated in our shop and kind of installed in a way that is pretty simple and straightforward. Yeah. I was kind of curious if there was a project size limit to what your fabrication studios would take on. I mean, 30,000 feet sounds like a ton of space and it is a ton of space, but if somebody said, Hey, I want you to do this 200,000 square foot commercial campus for us. You could be overwhelmed with something like that. I don't know if there's strategy associated yeah. with that or not. Yeah. So we have a few projects like that, that we've done. It always kind of becomes a partnership. It depends on, if you're talking about a project of that scale, then if it's a multifamily project, we are not going to be competitive on the apartments. That stuff is manufactured. It's not really created in a shop like ours. It just isn't. It's not crafted. It is manufactured, right? Yeah, it is. It really is. It's produced on an assembly line and it's a different deal. So we don't even try to compete on that. Now, what we may do is the lobby or the amenity spaces, right? Those are high touch points and there's a different level of value and meaning in those spaces. And it makes sense sometimes for us to fabricate those. And then on other projects where it's for a, a retailer that may be rolling out several dozen, we might do the prototype or the first two prototypes. And then we would partner with a, another company who has more capacity, or frankly, just let our clients partner with another company that has the capacity to do something bigger. Are there any of those particular type of jobs that as a designer resonate with you a little bit? Because I will tell you that as I've looked through, I don't think it's creeper of me because I'm on Instagram and you put it out there for people like me who digest this stuff with some volume. I remember watching the beer caddies coming together. And thinking how fun that must have been for the people working on that project to come up with the concept, how to make it work. It, it's like this little artistic, it's like a little folly. It's like a little millwork folly that was made. And I look at those sorts of things and I go, man, that looks like an architect did that. That looks like that was born out of problem solving 101, but making it cool and making it interesting as a thing, even empty. It's interesting. Stacked up. It's interesting. I don't know who designed that in your office. I don't know how the process worked, but I wonder if those sorts of challenges and things that you're tasked with are received differently than if somebody's saying, hey, I want to design you know, this really beautiful credenza that's going to go into the front hall of this building. Yeah, they're all different. And that's what I love about it. You know, Custom fabrication is exactly that custom and problems are different. The people are different. Price points are different. And there's a story behind everything. I mean, that, that beer caddy, I was kind of laughing when you brought it up because we did that obviously for a brewery. I wasn't part of the deal making on this, but we decided we were going <laughs> we to do the caddies and trade for beer. And ah. <laughs> I can tell you, we, I don't think we won on the negotiation there. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't come out ahead on that one. Huh? Well, I don't know. I mean, financially speaking, we have had a lot of beer, which so maybe <laughs> you could argue that we did okay. But that was a competition inside our office and anybody could submit. And actually one of our craftsmen won that, who's also an artist. Most of our craftsmen are artists, by the way. They've got an art degree of some sort. And so one of our craftsmen won that competition and that's where it came from. Yeah. I thought it was particularly clever. You know, on the commercial side, we did a project for a retailer, and this is another example of a, this company, you know, we were doing very high-end retail build-outs for them, two $300 square foot build-outs 10 years ago, right? So that's four hundred bucks a foot right now. So it's big, high-end stuff. And, and, you know, what's happened with the retail market, everything's changed and they have to do more for less. Anyway, they came to us and said, hey, we want to expand and we want to continue to do stores with you, but you know, we're spending $400,000 on these build-outs. We got to just spend like 80 to 100 on them. And how do we do that? And so we came up with this idea that's a shop in a box and it's this plywood box that's the exact measurements of what FedEx freight. They've got a limit on what they'll, I guess they'll deliver our ship. <laughs> and it's some dimension. I don't know. I think it's like three or four feet by four feet by eight feet. And so we made these boxes out of plywood and put their entire store in it and zipped them together with screws. And, you know, it had hanging fixtures and all kinds of wall fixtures and everything. All of it was in that box. <laughs> it was great. And we got their cost down to like 40 grand. It was a big success. And they did end up doing like 10 of them across the country. So stuff like that's really fun. And I wouldn't know how to do that if we didn't have the ability to just kind of quickly grab people and put things together. 
a process like that involves, I'm assuming, everybody in the office from the craftsman to the architects, I mean, the designers, figure all that stuff out and put it together. Yep, it's absolutely. You actually have a sentence on your website that I think kind of speaks to that, and maybe we can elaborate a little bit more on it. But So it actually reads, our studio is organized to foster a collaborative, multidisciplinary environment that expands traditional notions of the architectural practice, integrating and designers and builders into one seamless process. And that's kind of what we've been talking about a little bit is how can I pull in all these different voices and viewpoints, stick them all in a room, and the sum of the parts comes up with something special. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Easier said than done, but um, that is that is the mission. It wasn't even easy for me to read. <laughs> <laughs> As you're reading it, I was thinking, man, I, I think I was kind of wordy on that one. <laughs> I was going, there should be a comma in here somewhere. I, like, I need a breath. That's that Columbia coming out of you right yeah, there. Right? Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Theory. So here's yeah. the question we haven't asked that I'm just going to go ahead and kick out there. Are you yourself a fabricator? Have you built stuff? Or was it just you went through this a process of learning how to build stuff and that's why it became important? I'm curious about that. Here's a secret. I am not at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to be. Yeah, You know, I do. I watched Norm build furniture just like a lot of us did on PBS and, uh, and I love it and I love the craftsman and I have a great respect for it, but I know I am not. I've always had a dream of being able to go into our shop on the weekends and teach my kids how to make something and I don't know how, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but I know, you know, I think that obviously I, I think, I hope I've got a talent and an understanding of how things go together. But I don't, I don't have the, the patience or skills to, to really kind of put them together with the level of craft that we expect in our company. But backing up even a little bit more, and I think it's part of why we do what we do is growing up, I grew up on a farm. It was kind of a pseudo farm. And my dad wasn't a farmer per se, but it was 100 acres and had cattle and, and no cable TV, right? So I entertained myself by going out and picking up my dad's tools and doing stuff. And so I've always loved working with my hands. I'm not a craftsman per se, but I've always been just really intrigued on how things get put together and enjoyed that piece of it. But the truth is out. I am not a craftsman. Sorry. I didn't even put you on the spot there. (laughs) It's okay. We can cut that out if you want. It's okay, right? (laughs) No, it's no problem. It's actually not a secret whatsoever. Matthew, I'll tell you a Norm Abram story since you brought him up. It's embarrassing for me, but I think everyone will appreciate it. So I guess it was about four years ago. You can see that I have this beautiful Santa Claus beard on my face and I'm not a beard guy. And my wife is not particularly, she's not pro facial hair on men for the most part. And this is about four years ago. Our office would close between Christmas and New Year's. And due to my proud Viking heritage, I can grow a beard in about two weeks. I mean, it takes like no time at all. And I didn't shave because I'm like, I'm on holiday. It was a legit beard for most people after two weeks. And I'm heading down to Orlando to the NAHB Kitchen and Bath trade show. I got invited to sit on a panel to talk about the skilled labor shortage in America, and which I'm perfectly qualified to talk about that. And so sitting on this panel was me and the entire cast of this old house. <laughs> So it was Richard Trithui. I mean, it was Norman. It was everybody. That's awesome. And all I could think of is, why am I here? You have this old house <laughs> to talk about this. And so I'm getting ready to leave and I shaved because I'm like, growing up, I felt it was my duty to watch this old house. I didn't have cable. There wasn't the kind of HGTV didn't exist. If you wanted to be an architect, this was the closest thing to right. design and fabrication and seeing how things got built and how craftsmen, that show really drilled into the idea that if someone's going to do something, they talk to the guy doing it to talk about why he was doing. Like the architect was never really represented on that show. Right. It was the guys doing the work. And so I always had it instilled in me that you want to know how to do something, talk to the guy who does it every day. That's the guy. You should listen to him. Yeah. So I shaved my beard off. Because these are the closest things I have to childhood heroes. I'm not a starstruck person, but I'm like, I'm not sitting on a couch with Norm Abrams wearing my Christmas growth. And I shaved it off and I didn't feel like I needed to get permission. You know, I'm a grown man. And I walk out, my wife goes, what'd you do? And I said, I shaved. And she goes, oh, I kind of liked you with the beard on. I go, you don't like beards? And she goes, well, 
it hides this. And she starts like rubbing her throat. And I was like, oh, that's a burn. It's like totally burned me. And I grew the beard back and I've never shaved it since. I have Norm Abrams to thank for all this. Well, he's a good man. This beard. Yeah. Nonsense. Yeah. You know what? He was literally about the nicest person you could ever meet too. And I saw that guy talk. This is not the Norm Abrams show. He's not our guest today. But I will tell you, walking around, I spent like an hour and a half with the guy and probably 50 people walked up to him and said, you changed my life. You're the reason I do what I do. I'm in this profession. I do X for a living because I watched you. He was gracious. He thanked every single person. I thought, how do you not just get beaten down? Because you know this is what his life is. Anytime he goes anywhere, everyone who's in the construction trade who's over 40 years old says, you're everything. You changed every part of my life. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I met him at the Builders show in Las Vegas. It's been seven or eight years ago. I had the same experience. He was really, really nice. And it was a pretty cool deal. And it's interesting to your observation on this old house because actually never really thought of that. The architect is rarely involved in that. It's always talking to the plumber and, or the, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. and yeah. Uh, I grew up watching that and uh, maybe that's part of why we do what we do. But yeah, I kind of wondered, I started doing residential work probably about 20 years ago and it was part of it was just me understanding what my skill set was and finally leaning into it. The difference between who I thought I was and what I should be doing versus what I was actually good at. And when I finally figured that out and leaned into it, Everything was different, much more positive daily experience for me. And we did a lot of fairly high-end homes. And the people that we worked with, framers, the masons, they were really, really good at what they did. And more times than not, they made me look like I was a better architect than I probably was because I might not draw something the way that they're building it. And I'd say, wait a minute, that's not the way I drew it. And they go, well, that's not how it's done. Or well, this makes more sense. Or we think we should do this instead. And, and they wouldn't ignore it and just go do it. And I'd show up one day on the site and it's done differently. And they'd go, surprise. It wasn't like that. It was very collaborative in the sense they'd say, we know what you're trying to do. Can we talk about if we do it a different way to get the same results? And so I loved going on job sites. And for, I bet 10 years, from the time I was about 35 years old to 45, I wondered if I missed my calling not being a contractor because I loved being on the job site so much and learning from all these people. And it really shaped the idea that you want to not do something, talk to the guy that does it every day. Hmm. I think it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference, especially in the residential world where you have access to that level of craftsman and you're trying to do all these different things. And you know, most residential projects, you don't have a consultant team. That's experts in HVAC and plumbing and all these other things. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. I really enjoy that part of the process too. You know, it is kind of funny and I know that I'm hijacking some of Andrew's time, but <laughs> you're hijacking his time, not mine. Well, we can keep talking for as long as we want. <laughs> it was the idea that, so I left this world of doing residential projects, not, we didn't do a hundred percent residential, same kind of thing. Somebody say, we like what you did for our house. Will you take on this small commercial project over here? But we treated even our commercial jobs like we treated our residential. It was very high touch, white glove service. You call me at eight o'clock at night, I answer the phone. That was just how you were trained when you worked on these high-end residential houses because those people have jobs too a lot of times and they don't meet you during the day. They meet you after they come home from work as well. And one of the things I thought was really different was the attitude and nature of the relationships that I have with contractors and subcontractors after 20 years doing high-end residential, coming to a commercial environment could not be more different. Mm. Working with contractors that do mid-rise commercial buildings. I'm not saying they're not nice people. They are. I've worked with lovely people, but mm. there's such a different kind of way that the job feeds their soul differently as a high-end residential contractor than some guy that's building a 400,000 square foot mid-rise office building. Yeah. It's so different. It's very different. Not as collaboration. There's not as much, you know, let's work together to make a something amazing happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's very different. And it's different on the architecture side, I think, too. It's something that we are constantly kind of tweaking and how we work. And a lot of people in our firm really enjoy working on houses, but not all the time, you know. But yet at the same time, you know, I have to kind of coach our staff through when we take on a residence, like, okay, you know, you might have been working on a 
commercial project for the last year or two, but if you're going to take on a residential project, it's a different level of expectations, different level of communication. This, these are people make decisions based on emotion. There may be a budget, but they're going to make decisions based on emotion. It's their house. That's okay. Sometimes it's not logical. That's okay. You know, versus a commercial project that doesn't happen, right? If there's a, they're typically a for-profit thing or a budget, there's, there's right. things make a little bit more sense. So it's something I still trying to figure out the best way to run a practice that does both and tries to do both really well. In that same instance, I feel like for me, it's always been about the speed of those two things. Commercial work is always is about speed. It's a fast paced thing and residential work seems to be a little bit slower. How does the fabrication side of your work figure out that at least when it's involved, does it slow down that process some, or is it just the fabrication has to just catch up? Let's catch up. We treat the fabrication side. It's not a separate entity, but it is treated and kind of run as separately and cleanly as possible. And that goes all the way through the delivery to a job site. We typically run it through a general contractor and the general contractor can do their typical markup on it and get paid for helping us coordinate it. And sometimes we competitively bid it. We need to make sure it's not awkward for the client. That's it's fine if they need to check the price. Uh, we feel like we need to be competitive and so it's fine. And, and we always, you know, have to meet deadlines and operate under the same conditions as any other subcontractor might. We found that to be the cleanest way and the most fair and the really the, in the best interest of everybody. Have you ever gotten any pushback from contractors or owners about you being the architect and fabricating part of the process? Like if you're bidding it out, there's some expectation that, well, you know, he is the guy that's helping decide if I get the job, you know, if I'm the contractor, right. maybe I might want to use him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it gets a little awkward at times, but we gone a traditional route in delivery for that reason. If it's getting competitively bid and there's multiple general contractors, then we send them the same price to each contractor and, and we treat them like we want them to treat us. That's never typically a problem. We had issues when we didn't use a traditional route. We used to you know, since we were handling it and we were working directly with the client, we would just make it owner provided. And that became contentious because contractors felt like they needed to make their markup on it. Yes. <laughs> and I agreed with that. That was a lesson learned after a while doing it. I was like, you know what? They're right. I mean, this is a part of how they make their money. And as a result though, we're going to put some work on them to help us coordinate things. And we'll just go to the standard delivery. And then after that, contractors love it because if we're fabricating it, there's a lot less finger pointing. We've designed it and it has to go in <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. and they get to stand back and say, you know, uh, you did it. <laughs> yeah. So the Otis is on us, which we like, but. I was curious about like in your practice right now, what's the split? How many people are in the fabrication shop versus how many are in the design studio? How many people split the glass in, in the grocer's warehouse? Yeah, it, it's 25% or less is in our fabrication side. It's small. Yeah. We've been a lot bigger, but we've kind of got a, a small group of really talented craftsmen. And it's kind of our sweet spot to be able to kind of do what we need to do consistently and keep quality up. So you have digital fabrication and metal and wood. You have like two or three in each one of those? Or is it like there's only one metal guy and he does all the metal work and there's a couple of wood guys or... There's one person per studio that's really focused on that studio. And then there's two or three people that can float and bounce around. I got you. Most of them are cross-trained and can do almost anything I got from you. furniture to building casework to, you know, I mean, running a CNC machine is not, not everybody can do that. That's very specialized. And yeah. as it's finishing, that's different, but we try our best to kind of make sure everybody can do everything as much as possible. Along those lines, I'm curious. If it's something that you design and you're planning on fabrication, but then it goes out for bidding, do you feel a little cringe when you spent this time? Like, I'm sure you fabricated some prototype to get the design all worked out. And then somehow it just gets fed to somebody else and you guys don't get to make it come to fruition like you want. Is there a little bit of a, a gouge there or is it okay? Yeah. No, that's painful. <laughs> no, it, it, it's no, I was going to say, they've got some employees with some amazing free cabinets, you know, in their, <laughs> yeah. in their side rooms. Because I feel like that would be part of it. Because I, I would imagine that as you're going through the design process and your plan is to fabricate things, that you guys are prototyping things and figuring out how it should be designed and putting it together. And that if it ends up being competitive bid, there's a possibility that it 
it doesn't come to you and then you feel like uh we did all this and gave it away not really because it still ends up in the project but just not quite the same way yeah you know i mean it's painful for two reasons one of course is just the finance behind it all the business mm -hmm. side right but it's also painful just because there's nothing i love more than going into a space that we designed and fabricated everything in i mean there's just a really special feeling there it's not like a pride in a way of like oh we did everything it's just pride in like a Scott that made that table and that's Matt that finished that cabinet over there and that's Burgess that did that metal base you know you know the people that crafted the thing and it gives it a whole other level of meaning and, and you know, that's special that's actually the more painful than the financial piece it's like you lose a little piece of it when we don't get to get do everything but it happens that's actually come up a few times in my career that I've had explained to people but I'll just tell the story this particular story only happened once but we did a, a project and it was for a pretty wealthy client and they wanted a very particular type of hot tub in this pool to the point where they actually sent the guy who built the pool to Palm Springs to get all the measurements from the spa at his house there that he wanted to recreate here. <laughs> so he went out there, took all the measurements, built it exactly what it was. And the guy decided, no, I don't want it like that. I'm going to change it. So he paid them to do it, and then he paid them to tear it out, and he paid them to do it again, but differently. And the pool guy was kind of grousing about it. I was early in my residential career, and I was like, what do you complain about? It's like you just got two jobs with the liability of one. And he said, I did the work right, and I want it to exist. It had nothing to do with the money. He goes, I don't like tearing out good work. That's the part that bothers me. It's like, we did it and it was right and it was good. And then at the end of it, you just tear it up and throw it out. He goes, it hurts to do that. And I'd never, ever thought of it like that before, which I thought was kind of interesting that contractors, craftsmen, fabricators, they feel the same thing about like when we design something that doesn't get built or it doesn't come to fruition, it's always kind of disappointing because you, in my mind, it, it's not real if it doesn't get built. Paper projects don't matter to me so much. They're fun, but I don't think they count. People who build things for a living, even if they're getting paid for it, if it goes away, that it hurts. It does. Yeah. It's like children, right? I mean, it's like you're it's your baby. You made those things. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. It becomes very special. All right, Matthew, we're heading towards the end of our time together. And you are a good enough sport to agree to do the would you rather. But we're going to get to that in one minute. I wanted to give you an opportunity. So we've covered a lot of ground and just skipped the surface on a lot of different things. Is there anything that you want to put a bow on this conversation where design and fabrication and collaboration and all that kind of comes together? Risk-taking. <laughs> Risk-taking, firm starting. Do you want to have any closing comments on that? Well, that's putting me more on the spot than the would you rather question. You can say no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just cut it out. <laughs> I think we really enjoy what we do, and it's been a really interesting journey and a fun journey to develop the company and work with the clients we're doing. And we're always kind of reinventing ourselves by the nature of actually fabricating and designing the stuff we're doing. It's not easy, but it, I think it's been a wonderful thing for us. Nice. So Matthew's a good sport, has agreed to answer our would you rather question. We did tell him what it was right before we started the show. So if he's thought about it, I'd be impressed because we have been asking him questions for the last hour. So, and we're going to let you answer first because the way this works is you answer, and then we tell you why you're wrong and why our answer is correct. Oh, no. So it really puts you on the spot. Oh, no. It's going to be you answer and you're wrong. I answer and I'm wrong. Bob answers and tells us why we're both wrong. That's how it works. <laughs> well, I will tell you that the one I remember that you asked was about uh, breakfast for dinner, I think. Yeah, you had a would you rather. There was something about like, would you rather have breakfast yeah. for dinner? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, dinner for breakfast or breakfast for dinner. I didn't agree with you. I didn't agree with really? that. Really? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I couldn't do well, breakfast for dinner every day. No way. Uh, yeah, but you could do dinner for breakfast every day. Yeah, for sure. Steak? Absolutely. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Oh, <laughs> and we're it cutting all that. a week because then he'd be dead for <laughs> steak for breakfast <laughs> yeah. every day. Yeah, I know. And no one will know it because we're going to cut that out of the show. So no one will know <laughs> that you disagreed. <laughs> Here's the question. Would you rather know when you are going to die or how you're going to die? And you can't change your knowledge of that will not change the outcome. You have to go first as our guest. 
I um I feel like this is kind of a morbid one. I feel like I'm getting a, a gloomy would you rather, but um I can tell you what the other question was, but I thought I don't no, want to put him on a spot for this one. I'm good with this. I'm good with this. Okay. I would like to know when I would die versus how I was gonna die. Do you want me to give a reason or do I is that just Yeah, no, no. No, you can. I will tell you for Andrew, that's the right answer, by the okay. way. Good. That's the right answer. Pass. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I mean that gives me time to plan we're planners so i can i can plan my death and have a hell of a party and then you know yeah all right look i got a twist for you okay so andrew you give us your answer and then i'm going to tell you the twist even though it looks like andrew's going to go the other direction on this no no i wasn't that was my answer as well because Uh i don't care how i'm going to die i'm just going to die right if i can't stop it what does it matter how it happens i would much rather know when so that i could do certain it matters a a ton. It matters so much. If I told you, hey, no, no, no here's why. No, no, here's why. I've got my bucket list, or I can get things arranged for my kids, or like Maddie said, the day before it happens, I'm gonna have a giant party. We're no. gonna blow it out, right? Because <laughs> tomorrow I'm gonna die. I already said that's the right answer, but the reason it's the right answer is not because. What if I said I'm gonna tell you the day, but you don't know the year? So on October 21st, you're gonna die, but you don't know what year. I go. Your life is going to be agony, almost <laughs> like you're going to plan and it didn't happen. You're like, oh, all right. So I have 10 months until I start worried about it being that next year. Right. So that makes it the wrinkle. The reason why it's still the right answer is because if I said you're going to die in your sleep and you're like, well, that's wonderful. But is it going to be tonight? <laughs> right. Like you don't you don't know when it's going to happen. And if I say you're going to be hit by a car. And you're like, when? Every day of your life, no matter what the answer is for the method in which you're going to die, it could happen right then. So the rest of your life is ruined. I honestly don't think that it would have to be suicide. That would have to be the right answer because there's no way you could make it. (laughs) There's no way you could make it. Even if I said a bird is going to die at such a high elevation, it's going to fall from the sky and hit you on the head. And that's every time you go outside, you're going to go, Umbrella. Birds like this could be, <laughs> yes. I, it would ruin your life. So it has to be when you die for a reason that it's better than the other. Yeah, especially if you can't change it, though. Let's say, for example, it was like, I'm going to die in a plane crash. Well, if I never get on a plane, I'm going to think I'm going to miss it. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't be walking down the street and get hit by a plane crash. Yeah. So if I can't change it, I would rather know when it is because then I can plan for it. 100%. Yeah. Either answer is terrible. I think either one, but one destroys your daily experience in a profound way. And the other one just gives you a little bit of respite, but then ruins it for, because you still would have anxiety. Even if I, you don't know how you're going to die. You could die by bird. You don't know what it's going to be, but if you know it's going to happen and you're planning for it, great. You get to plan, say goodbyes, all that kind of good stuff. Actually, what I would do is I would divorce my wife. If I knew, (laughs) this is it. If I found out I was going to die and it was more than like a year in advance, I would divorce my wife. And I tell her, I go, look, I still love you, but I'm going to divorce you. And I'm going to go buy like insurance policies and I'm going to go like max out my credit. I'm going to go loan every penny that someone will get me. I'm going to go crazy and I'm going to give it all to my wife and then I die. And I'm like, nobody can come collect. That's what I would do. That's the kind of love I have for my family, Matthew. That's what you need to know about me. Always thinking about the next person. Well, well, the life insurance policies might work, but the loans wouldn't. You'd have to collect my loans. Yeah, who? where are they getting it from? Uh, who are they coming after to get my loan? Yeah. See, it's foolproof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. See, uh, no. Andrew's always making fun of me because all my answers, I want to like save the world or he questions my methods, my reasons for wanting to do that. And I go, either way, I'm saving the world. It's not a problem. I don't understand why it's a bad part. So, you know, I've listened to your podcast. I told you I'm a fan of it. And I've heard these questions a lot. I feel like I'm getting a pretty morbid one. Like, I want to be talking about like living in Australia or something. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, we can cut this part out. Yeah. You'd be surprised. It's like we've been doing them long enough. It's hard to find them, hard to come up with some, mainly because Bob has rules about this one's actually pretty morbid. Normally, this wouldn't make the cut (laughs) about, you know, he doesn't like mine. I give him some, he calls them Sophie's choice, right? Where it's like, yeah, does it, somebody have to die or somebody else no, have to die? You have to choose. And he doesn't like those. Not my moral dilemmas. He wants them to be mm-hmm. much more lighthearted. 
I do. Yeah, that's okay. Everybody's going to remember episode 85 because it's where Bob talks about divorcing his wife. That's, <laughs> <Right>. um... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the irony is, is tomorrow is my wedding anniversary. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> Uh, well, you can tell you can uh, tell her, hey, today I made a decision for your future. <laughs> the divorce papers are coming tomorrow. Yeah, my wife doesn't listen to the podcast, so <laughs> I can say whatever I want. All right, Matthew, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about design and fabrication, your office and your career and all those kind of really fun things. So thank you for spending your evening with us. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. There you go. Another episode in the record books. Hope you enjoyed the more serious part of today's conversation with Matthew Huft. Thank you for being with us for episode 85, Design and Fabrication. We would like to thank our sponsor, Otis Elevator, for their generous support of today's episode. And special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get magically delicious new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment. I greatly appreciate if you would leave us a five-star digital fabrication studio rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this wonderful episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.